0: Good morning. How are you guys doing this morning? We're picking up in our story of 2 Samuel, so if you have your Bibles and you haven't yet, let me invite you to open to 2 Samuel chapter 18. If we hadn't had the chance to meet, my name's Daniel. I have the honor of serving and preaching and teaching at the Mountain Church. My heart in preaching is to encourage you in your faith and to share the good news about Jesus. So I I hope to preach Christ through all of the scriptures, not necessarily preach Christ, preach the text in such a way that appeals to a sense of self-righteousness and pride and moralism and just get it together and work harder and not a sense of, oh, it doesn't really matter. (laughs) We can live how we want, right? But there's a sense of gospel Uh, centrality that I would like to present in in so much so that we believe the word of God is true and authoritative, and we believe that the gospel is good news of God's grace that changes us from the inside out and empowers us to live a life of godliness. That's my heart in preaching. That's what I hope to do this morning. You're wondering, okay, how are we going to get to Jesus in 2 Samuel 18? We can get to Jesus in all of the scripture. A whole testimony of scripture is pointing to Christ and his work on the cross. So that's my aim, to show you more of the heart of God, the heart of the Father, the love of Jesus, the power and the beauty of the Holy Spirit, that you would be moved to love God and love others. Amen? That's my aim. Samuel is a story of pride and promises. We've been looking at the story for some time now. And God has promised to the people of Israel, in spite of their breaking of the covenant in spite of their continual rebelling against God. They're worshiping other gods. They're not serving God. They're not honoring God as God. God has promised his people rest from their enemies. He's promised their people a king and a ruler to deliver them. The beginning of Samuel opens with this beautiful prayer or poem written from a woman named Hannah. And Hannah is the mom of Samuel who then anoints the first king of Israel and then the second king of Israel and serves as a, a bridge between this period of the judges and the kings. And Hannah highlights in her prayer the main themes of this story of first and second Samuel, which is just one unified story. The only reason it was broken up into two is because back then they didn't have kind of codex turn the page thin pages like we have, they had scrolls. So they broke up the story into two scrolls, which is why we have First and Second Samuel, but it's just one story called Samuel. And she prays this at the beginning of the story. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He exalts and he brings low. He raises up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. The Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So this is, opens the, kind of sets the trajectory of the whole book. That's where we're going, the Lord exalts and he brings low. And Israel's first king is a man of pride. This guy named Saul. Now from the outside, he looks like he'd be a good king. He's taller than everyone. He's handsome. It seems like he'd be a good choice. This is what we like in leaders. Are they tall? Or are they handsome? <laughs> but he, he, uh, he makes some grave mistakes and the Lord ultimately rejects him as being king in his pride and in his unbelief. And the Lord anoints the second king, this little, the youngest of, this little shepherd boy named David, a least likely guy. And David promises to this lowly man that I'm going to establish from his lineage, from his offspring, an eternal kingdom, a kingdom where there's going to be justice will reign. There's going to be a kingdom of peace is going to be established. He says, after you die, David, I'm going to raise up for you an offspring who will do this. He says this in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So from your body, your inner self, your very person is gonna come this son. And interestingly enough, the first place we see this word used in the Hebrew scriptures is in Genesis 15, four. And it's the same word used when God is talking to a guy named Abram comes Abraham, the father of the Israelites. This is what God tells Abraham. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him said, this man shall not be your heir. Abraham's wondering, okay, how is this promise gonna be fulfilled that you give me to be a blessing to the nations? My seed is gonna bless the whole world if I don't even have a son. Abraham's confused by this. He's an, and he's looking at outside of his immediate family at relatives that he has. And God's saying, no, 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 this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And you might have a little footnote there in Genesis 15, 14 that says like, from your loins or from your bowels, like from your inner self. It's the same phrase that is used when, when God is giving the same promise to David. So it's almost as though God is saying, this promise given to Abraham to bless the world through you is repeated to David through his son. So he's not only going to have an eternal kingdom, but through this son, the promise given to Abraham is going to be realized. The world is gonna be blessed through him. I think that's cool. Like it just continues to point to to Christ. So the author of Samuel's connecting this. God's rescue plan is gonna come through this family. This, This offspring of David is in the same line as Abraham, but it's not long after this beautiful promise given to David in 2 Samuel 7 that David does something super wrong, super dumb. An egregious act of evil, abuse of power. He covets another man's wife. He takes her. He kills the husband and he tries to cover it all up. And we know God sees all and he sends his prophet Nathan to confront King David and he tells him this, 2 Samuel 12, verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. So there's gonna be family drama in David's line. He's saying there's gonna be violence, there's gonna be destruction, there's gonna be all kinds of dysfunction and it's literally... The story right after this, very next chapter, one of David's sons, Amnon, violates his half-sister, Tamar, abuses her. And this causes Tamar's brother, or the, the half-sibling, got him Absalom, to hate Amnon. And he plans and assassinates his brother and then flees. So he kills David's firstborn son, Amnon, flees away from Israel for three years, and five years in total come Go by, And then Absalom starts to undercut his father. He starts to steal away the hearts of the people of Israel and he appoints himself king, overthrowing his father. He betrays his dad. And last week we covered 2 Samuel 16 and 17, which covered David escaping out of Jerusalem, going into the Jordan. It it covered Absalom listening to the bad counsel of one of David's spies, a guy named Hushai, who said, no, 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 don't just go after David and kill him. Let's have an all out war. Against David. So Absalom listens and they, and they have a war against David, and that kind of sets the stage for this battle in 2 Samuel 18 between those who are loyal to Absalom and those who are loyal to David. You guys get a context? Feel caught up if you missed last week or the whole study? <laughs> so we're going to see, I think, three kind of main things in the story. Number one, the downfall of pride. Number two, the need for justice. And number three, the heart. Of the Father, So the stage been set, we're going to see this battle. Verse one, then David mustered the men who were with him and set them over commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. This signifies here that this is not just some sort of pit, poor little pitiful party that's with David. He still has some good support. They've got commanders of thousands, hundreds, and David sets out, he's going to divide the army into thirds, which is common practice, but it's to allow the army to have flex- flexibility and mobility. And David says, I'm, I am myself, I'm going to go out with you guys. I'm going I'm to lead. I'm going I'm to be with you. <laughs> and David's men are like, no, David, you're worth more to us than thousands. You're going to stay home. And he says, whatever, whatever seems good to you, whatever seems best to you, I will do. Right? And David shows what a good leader is. Doesn't always have to have all the answers. <laughs> if he recognizes wisdom outside of himself, he'll listen to it. Okay. Let's keep going. I'm going to start getting off tangents and start preaching all these other sermons. David's men think that the rebellion of Absalom depends upon David's life. So if if David is killed, everything rides and falls on that. So David going out to battle is too risky. So David stays behind, but he tells Joab and Abishai and Ittai, the commanders, in the earsight of all that are present. So he doesn't have the secret little meeting until, hey guys, I know Absalom is a traitor, he's a rebel. You kind of want to kill him, but deal gently with him. He says that in front of everyone. Everyone hears this. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. He says this, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Okay, listen, it's not because Absalom deserves to be treated gently. It's for my sake, do this. So the army went out to the field against Israel and the battle was fought in the forest. The men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David and the loss was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Now, the first time I heard that, kind of seeing some of you guys make some faces, what's going on here? Is this some sort of enchanted forest? Is this like the forest of Fangorn in J.R. Tolkien's Middle Earth? Are there like ants that are coming out here and smashing up these troops? Yep, says Thomas. What does it mean that the forest devoured more people that day than the sword? It seems to be this is an expression that the dangers of, this, of a dense forest, the traps, pits, poisonous plants, low branches, wild animals. It could have been David's army had set out traps in the forest and the people had fallen that way. It could have been that Absalom's men were just not very skilled, so they got lost and died in the woods. <laughs> But the result, the end result is, although we'd like a little footnote there that explains what does that mean, the end result is twenty thousand die. Great loss. And it seems like those, that very kind of element of the forest, low branches, is what snares Absalom. Absalom happens to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule. It was kind of be commonplace for the sons of kings riding on mules. They went under thick branches of a great oak and his head caught fast in the oak and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule was, that was under him went on. So you kind of got this picture of David's riding along on this mule. He gets caught in the branches and the mule keeps going and he's just hanging there. He's just hanging out. Just hanging out. And it, in my studies, it seemed kind of most, most uh, set forth the opinion the idea that the part of his head that caught in the branch was his hair. Because we're told, 2 Samuel 14, 25, Absalom took great pride in his hair. So what 2 Samuel 14:25 reads, now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. And as a readers, we're we're sitting here, okay, who else was described like this? Saul. So, not good, right? (laughs) Not going well with him. He's prideful. He seems to be arrogant. And look what he would do with his hair, 26. When he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year, he cut it, when it was very heavy on him, he weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. Now, why would someone weigh their own hair? It was like bragging rights. Amongst his boys? I got the thickest hair and it's heavy. Yeah. Burn. It seemed to be a great source of pride for him. It seemed that his, his hair was tangled. It got caught in the branch. And it seems like the source of his pride became what caused his very death. The Lord brings low and he exalts. You can hear the words of Hannah in that poem. Pride is deadly. Pride is what causes us to think we don't need God. The, the sin beneath every sin is, is pride. Pride is ultimately what separates us from God. It's, it's the root of our self-centeredness, our self-righteousness. We don't need God. i am got it in myself. I don't need anyone else for help. This is pride. I'm gonna reject God as king because I can rule my own life. Pride causes us to admit, to admit that we're not wrong. We don't admit when we're wrong because of our pride. And looking at this story and just life, there's kind of a sweet sense of justice when someone boasts immediately falls because of that boasting. So one of the examples is Muhammad Ali, before his fight in 1971, before he was about to fight Joe Frazier, he said this, according to Life Magazine, there seems to be some confusion. We're gonna clear this confusion up on March 8th. We're gonna decide once and for all who is king. There's not a man alive who can whoop me. That's what Muhammad Ali is saying. I'm too smart, the doctor said. Too pretty. (laughs) (laughs) I am the greatest. That's what Muhammad Ali says. I am the king. I should be a postage stamp. That's the only way I could get licked. (laughs) That's what Muhammad Ali says. And of course, in sweet justice, he loses to Joe Frazier painful, but one of the more recent moments, one of the most recent kind of greatest hand and foot mouth moments in sports history, January 4th, 2004, the start of the overtime game in the NFC wildcard between the Seattle Seahawks and the Green Bay Packers at Lambeau Field. Seahawks quarterback at the time was Matt Hasselbeck, and he was the captain, goes out into the center of the field for the overtime coin toss. And the Seahawks win the toss, and this is what Matt Hasselbeck said, we want the ball, and we're going to score. And of course, what happens? His defense doesn't make mistakes. No one else fumbles the ball and coughs it up, and they return for a touchdown. Matt Hasselbeck throws it to the Green Bay cornerback. He runs it all the way back 50 yards for a touchdown, and the Seahawks lose. I remember watching that moment live. It was painful. (laughs) The thing that you pride yourself in the most... I'll just bring this a little more personal and home, right? The thing that you pride yourself in the most is what oftentimes when challenged will make you the most angry. You want to know what you're most prideful about? Wait till someone corrects it and see how angry you get. I pride myself on being a good husband. Stephanie says something that is contrary to that. I get angry. I pride myself on being a good husband. You pride yourself on being a good Christian. You're not going to be honest with others and yourself about your weaknesses, your insecurities, your sins. You'll fake it as you try to make it, trying to maintain an image. You won't let others in. You won't confess your sins. You'll have too much pride wrapped up. You'll need to maintain this false self that you've been protecting to others. You pride yourself on how good of a parent you are. (laughs) You're not going to ask for help. You're not going to see the weaknesses reflecting in your kids. When your kid fights with another kid, you're going to be tempted to believe No, 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 it was the other kid that really caused the problem. My kid can't do that. You pride yourself in your moral goodness and purity of character, you can tend to become bitter and not show forgiveness because there's no excuse when someone sins against you. You could never do that to them. You're justified in your unforgiveness. And the scriptures attest to it again and again that pride leads to destruction. Pride destroys. This idea is said numerous ways throughout the Proverbs. Listen to this, Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. When pride comes, disgrace follows, but with humility comes wisdom. Before his downfall, a man's heart is proud, but with humility comes before honor. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. That's what we're seeing in Absalom. Seems like what he took pride in the most is his very downfall. It's ironic. Downfall of pride. And now we'll see the need for justice. A certain man saw it and told you Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Job said to the man, what, you saw him? Why did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver and a belt. Talk about what your life is worth, right? <laughs> 10 pieces of silver and a belt. Must have been a nice belt. <clears throat> But the Lord's, the man said to Joab, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Atai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. Right, this guy heard this. He's not reaching out his hand against the king's son. And he says, on the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, there's nothing getting from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. So he doesn't trust Joab. He's like, even if I killed the man, you would have just let me take the fall and die. <laughs> so you get kind of two reasons for not killing. David commanded him to protect the young son, and even if I killed him, you would not have stood up for me. I don't trust you, man, so I'm not doing this. You're not gonna back me up. And Joab says, I'm not gonna waste time like this with you. So he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he's still alive in the oak. And 10 young men, Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Absalom might have, or excuse me, Joab might have been concerned that Absalom, if he brought him in alive, that he'd be forgiven, that it would continue this tension, this conflict between David and his son. Joab wanted to put an end to Absalom's evil and his treachery. So let's just get this over with. I don't have time to deal with this. He's caught in the tree. He's dead. I'm taking three javelins. One would be enough, right? Through the heart. But he's taking three. He's killing him. It might've been that Joab was angry that Absalom set fire to his fields. It might've been that he was angry at Absalom for all the trouble he caused in the kingdom. Like we gotta stop this internal fighting. We're not told. But you can. We can it might be that this is what he's, the, the motivations and behind this, but the point is that he kills Absalom in direct violation to the king's orders. But he blows the ram's horn to assemble the troops and the battle is over. And we're told even though Absalom had set up this pillar to himself, right, it's like, ugh, talk about pride, right? He's not honored in this death. He's not given the The burial of an honored king or the son of a king. He's not even buried in the tombs with his father. He's dishonored. He's thrown into a pit and is covered up with a huge mound of stones, a very great heap. He dies the death of a traitor, a rebel. Then Himaz, the son of Zadok, said, Now this is this is one that David has appointed to be a communicator already. And Himaz was on David's side, one who was someone who was communicating between the two. And he says, hey, let me run and carry the news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Job said, you are not to carry the news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall not carry this news because the king's son is dead. And he calls to a Cushite, to a (laughs) non-Israelite. And maybe Job is fearful of how David's gonna respond at the death of his son. He's like, oh, this guy's life is not as valuable. Job seems to be kind of that kind of practical kind of person He's fearful of how David might respond. He just says, no, I'm gonna send this Cushite. And has son of Zadok, said again to Joab, come what may, like whoever David responds, come what may. Let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, why will you run, my son, seeing that you have no reward for the news? There's no benefit of this news. He says, come what may. He said, I will run. So he said to him, run. Then has ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. So because of the mention of way of the plane, it, it could be the Cushite went kind of a shorter distance, but over the mountains. And Himaz has taken the longer way, but it's an easier way. And maybe he's just faster or he's more desperate to get the news to David. So he outrans the Cushite. And it, we're not told too why Himaz wants to deliver the news. It could be because he feels like he has this personal relationship. It could be he realizes the verity of this news and he wants to kind of be, give the news in a gentle way rather than this kind of cold news from a stranger. But the watchman at the gate recognizes him as, come running in. And he cries out to the king, all is well. And he bows before the king with his face to the earth and says, blessed be the Lord, your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord, the king. And the king said, is it well with the young man, Absalom? Almost as if he's not going to celebrate. He's, he wants to know how is Absalom. Him has answered, when Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion. Well, I do not know what it was. <laughs> he's not, I mean, he's. Is he lying? Yeah. Is he just not telling all the truth? Seems like he doesn't want to tell David. But here comes this Cushite. He doesn't care. He came and he said, Good news for my Lord the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of those who rose up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Same question. Is it well with the young man in Absalom? And the Cushite answered this not as gently maybe as him as might've pretended it. May the enemies of my Lord, the King, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. It's a conventional way of saying he's dead. And may all the enemies be dead like this guy, those who rise up against you. He's not being gentle, he's being very clear and David understands what it, what it means. Absalom is dead. enemies of the king, those who rise up against the king for evil would be like this man. In, in the sense, there's justice that need to be administered. Absalom was a rebel, a traitor, committed of treason. He deserved to die. But look at the heart of the father here. Verse 33. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he said, and as he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Right, re- Absalom was repeated three times. My son repeated five times, it's emphasizing this grief. David is overwhelmed with this sense of grief. His son has died. He goes up to his chamber to be alone, but we're told the next sentence in chapter 19, verse one, his wailing could be heard by others. This is loud. He's overwhelmed with grief. And even all the trouble that Absalom has caused, a civil war in Israel, 20,000 died. David is concerned about his son. He says, would I have died instead of you? Doesn't say, good riddance, you traitor, you chump, you cross me, you get what you deserve. So I'm so glad I don't have to deal with that anymore. This wicked son of mine. Would I have died instead of you, Absalom, my son? If only I died instead of you. I wish I would have died, David is saying. David loved his son. He wanted the men to be gentle with him even though he had been his enemy. And David a man, is a man who is acquainted with this kind of deep personal loss, this kind of sorrow. He had mourned the loss of his best friend, Jonathan, He'd mourned the loss of his son, born to Bathsheba. He mourned the loss of his firstborn son, Amnon, and now his son Absalom has died. No father wants to outlive their son. You can feel the emotion as David writes the Psalms in, in his understanding of grief. In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis write this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I came across this poem this week by William G. Coltman. He writes about the lessons we learn from sorrow. I think it's beautiful. It says this, Until I learned to trust, I never learned to pray. And I did not learn to fully trust till sorrows came my way. Until I felt my weakness, his strength I never knew, nor dreamed till I was stricken, that he could see me through. Who deepest drinks of sorrow, drinks deepest too of grace. He sends the storm so he himself can be our hiding place. His heart that seeks our highest good knows well when things annoy. He wouldn't, we would not long for heaven if earth held only joy. Many of the Psalms, David wrote, reflect this kind of trust, this kind of posture of that. He had learned he was a man acquainted with sorrow and grief. And there are times to grieve, times to lament, time to pour out our sorrow that is in our heart and cry before the Lord. Can't get into a kind of community posture, a Christian faith posture that teaches, well, you just gotta fake it till you make it. Everything's good. Smile and nod, boys. Smile and nod. The Lord is with us and present with us in our sorrow. He himself was a man of sorrows. And as we consider this exchange, as David's crying out in pain, if only I had died, you're kind of thinking, dude, no. Absalom? This guy's your enemy. And if you had died in his place, it would have just gone way worse for the people of Israel. Horrible ruler, foolish man, listens to bad advice, is caught up and conceited in himself, sets up a monument to himself, not even king. There's this interaction and I'm a, I'm a fan of Lord of the Rings. Thank you, Thomas. Wow. <laughs> I didn't suspect that would get an Amen. <laughs> But in J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings in the return of the king, there's a steward of Gondor, this kingdom of men named Denethor. And he had two sons, Boromir and Faramir. Boromir died and he's just left with Faramir. And there's this tragic interaction where Denethor asks, he says, much must be risked in war. Is there a captain here who still has the courage to do his Lord's will? And Faramir asks, or tells his dad, y- you wish now that our places had been exchanged, that I had died and Boromir had lived. But imagine a son asking a father that, feeling that, that dynamic. And what does the father say? Yes, I wish that. It's crushing, right? Famer says, since you were robbed of Boromir, I will do what I can in his dad. But think more highly of me, father. Just tragic moment. And you're, if you read the books or you watch the movies, you know Boromir is not displayed as the most noble guy. He has a lust for power. He tries to take the ring from Frodo to use it as a weapon against the dark lord Sauron and defeat his enemies, which anyone who tries to use a weapon, it's historically just gone really bad for them. You can't, you can't use evil to conquer evil. It's essentially what, what happens. He was strong. Boromir was the firstborn, yet it was his lust for power to take the ring for himself. He died. And Faramir is portrayed as someone who's not, not this way. He, in fact, had an opportunity to come across Frodo and take the ring for himself, but he lets him go. And it's like his father views this as soft. I wish that you would have died and not Boromir. And we're sitting here thinking, no. Faramir is a man of much more noble character. And hearing the heart of David, wishing that he had died in the place of Absalom, it's a little bit emotionally to me like that. no. Absalom got what he deserved. Yeah, David had his flaws, but he didn't try to overthrow the previous king. He didn't set up a rebellion against the Lord's anointed. He didn't dishonor his dad like this. And David and how I tried to illustrate this dynamic from Lord of the Rings points towards, it serves as a foreshadow to the scandalous nature of the cross. Scandalous in the sense of offensive to morality. It's shocking what the cross is. The willingness of the perfect Son of God to die in the place of sinners and rebels. The substitution of the innocent for the guilty. The peaceful for the violent. The leader of love with a leader of an insurrection and rebellion. There's this moment in, portrayed in the Gospel according to John, where Pilate, the Roman ruler at the time, he just kind of interviewed Jesus. He's trying to discern the charges that they brought against Jesus, and he says, I find this guy innocent. I don't see any, I find no basis for a charge against him. He hasn't done anything wrong. And he he tells the people of Israel, it's a custom for me to release to you at the time of the Passover one prisoner. Do you want me to release to you this Jesus, this King of the Jews? And the people of Israel, the crowd shouts, No, give us Barabbas, a murderer, man who was, he had taken part in an insurrection against Rome, he had taken part in an uprising. And the guilty man is set free and the innocent is sentenced to die. It's outrageous. But as the heart of the father in David cries for substitution. It also points forward to the substitution of Jesus upon the cross where we see this, the scandal of the cross. But it also falls short in that David's life wasn't actually exchanged for his sons. He had the desire. He says, I wish, if only, but he can ensure its completion, or fulfillment. Justice demanded death and a traitor and a rebel and those worthy who've committed insurrection, rebellion deserve to die. That would be justice. Joab brought this justice. But God, the father not only had the desire, but the power to ensure the substitution of the guiltless, innocent lamb for guilty rebels and traitors. Jesus came to die instead of his enemies. He was the ransom as payment for the sins of the world and he had the power, the ability to finish the work. So that as he was given up, he was able to bring both justice for the sins of rebels and traitors committed high treason against the king, the all creator, the almighty king of the universe. He could satisfy the justice of God and ex- extend the love of God. That rebels and traitors could be viewed as very sons and daughters of God the Father. And now Jesus has promised to deal with us in this way, to deal gently with us, to deal graciously with us, to deal kindly with us, not for our sake, not because we're worthy of it. <laughs> right? David did not want his people to show kindness and gentleness to Absalom for his sake. He said, no, for my sake, And God the Father does the same for us. For my sake, I will show you love and kindness. Why has God dealt kindly with us? Why has he been gentle with us, gracious with us? For his name's sake. It's not because of our goodness. It's not because we deserved it. The Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth has dealt kindly and gently and graciously with us for his own sake. Church, God has dealt kindly with us because of what Jesus has done. God's kindness and grace, his dealing with us is not because of our sake, but for the father's sake. The basis is the father himself. There was another who was hung on a tree. There was another who had a spear pierced in his side. And his death was not simply Just consequence and condemnation for a traitor. He was an innocent man giving up his place willingly for traitors like you and me and then extending the love and the kindness and the grace of God the Father. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, the great Baptist preacher in England. David might've said, is this this young man Absalom dead? For he is out of the way. There will be peace to my realm and rest to my troubled life. But no, he is a father. And there must be love in his own offspring. It is a father that speaks and a father's love can survive the enmity of a son. He can live on and love on even when his son seeks his blood. What a noble passion is a mother's love or a father's love. It is an image in miniature of the love of God. How reverently ought we to treat it? How marvelously has God been pleased to endow, especially godly people, with a sacred instinct of affection towards their children. Our children may plunge into the worst of sins, but they are still our children. They may scoff at our God, they may tear our heart to pieces with wickedness, but we cannot take complacency in them. At the same time, we cannot unchild them or erase their image from our hearts. We do earnestly remember them still, and we will do so as long as these hearts of ours beat in our chests. I have now and then met with professing Christians who have said, that girl will never darken my door again. In other words, good riddance. I do not believe in their Christianity. Whenever I have met with fathers who are irreconcilable to their children, I am convinced they are not reconciled to God. It cannot be possible that there should exist in us a feeling of enmity toward our own offspring after our hearts have been renewed. For if the Lord has forgiven us and received us into his family, surely we can forgive the chief of those who has offended us. And when they are our own flesh and blood, we are bound to do so. To cast off our own children is unnatural. And that which is unnatural cannot be gracious, even if tax collectors and sinners forgive their children. Much more must we. Let them go even to the extremities of unheard of sin. Yet as the mercy of God endures forever, so must the love of a Christian parent endure. If David says, if is the young man Absalom all right, we have none of us had a son that has acted half so badly as Absalom. And we must therefore still forgive and feel a loving interest in those who grieve us. And I was, I'm praying now as we respond to this, God, would you give us the Father's heart? Not only for our own children, but for those in our life, in our community, those who are, we are in relationship with. Amen? Amen? And how good and gracious is our God the Father. <laughs> that... A- if we can treat our children like this, how much more so will the father treat us? My favorite little lines from Jesus in the gospels is when he's encouraging his disciples to pray. And he says this, if you who are evil, (laughs) it's like a little, hey, you're evil. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more so does the father know know how to give good gifts to those who ask him? I'm convinced oftentimes what keeps us from God the Father is not so much our sin, but our dark thoughts of the heart of God is a lack of understanding of just how good and gracious our God the Father is. So I think as we read the story, we can be warned by the downfall of pride. You wanna be proud, proudful? You wanna boast in in what you're so good at? Your hair is gonna get caught in a thicket. You're just gonna hang there you see that picture right it's very vivid for me at least see this guy riding on a mule his hair's caught oh gosh the mule has gone and I'm just hanging there I want that image to be burned into my mind i thinking okay humble me father I don't want to be I don't want to be proud I want to pride myself in how good I am how awesome of a pastor or how awesome of a husband how awesome of a father I am humble me I want to be hanging there in a tree it's going to happen if you're prideful you're going to fall God opposes the proud. He says, He's going to bring low. Talk no more arrogantly, you proud. Hannah says, We're warned by the downfall of pride, and we realize that justice needs to be served. We have sinned against the Almighty, every last one of us. In our pride, we have set up our own rule and throne to, to determine right from wrong, to determine what's best for our life. We have rebelled against God. Yet we have also been captured by the heart of the father that although we were enemies, he exchanged his very own son in our place. He has dealt kindly with us and graciously with us. Therefore, we deal kindly with others. We deal kindly with our kids. We deal graciously with our friends. We deal graciously with our enemies, not because they're deserving of it. We're not kind to our kids because they deserve it. They've earned it. Like, I don't have to teach my kids disrespect. Somehow it's just intrinsic to them. They just just know how to do it. I didn't teach you that. Not because it's so easy. Like, I just wake up in the morning, I'm like, whoa, my heart is full of kindness. Who can I bestow on that today? (laughs) I wish that would be more and more frequent, but that's just it's not as it's so natural to me. Like, just oozing this... This kindness is just permeating and just ready to get out. We deal kindly with others because the Father in his grace and his kindness and his love, he has dealt kindly with us. We res- it's responsive. It's not mustered up in ourself. We're responding from the love of God. So we don't deal kindly with others because it's so easy, it's comfortable. Because natural to us, we do kindly because the Father has done something in our life, in our heart. And we ask God the Father, would you do that more in my heart that I would be captured and compelled by this kind of love, that it would change the way that I live. It would change in the way I'm grateful and I worship you with greater passion and fervor because I know and I'm realizing I'm captured, I'm gripped by what you have done for me on the cross and is extending into the way I love others or originating with God responding back in thanksgiving to God, but moving out to others. The love of Jesus is to control us. Paul writes this, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, for the love of Christ controls us, compels us, because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. Really short summary of the gospel right in there, right? And he says this, for he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Memorize this passage, amen? Teach our kids this passage, amen? He died that we who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for their sake died and was raised. The church may be warned by the downfall of pride. Rest in the justice of God. One day he will establish it forever in the new heavens and the new earth and be motivated and compelled by this love of Jesus who while we were rebelling against him, willingly and lovingly exchanged himself in our place. And would that reality grip our hearts more and more by his grace that we extend that to others, amen? Let's pray. Father, I confess that apart from you, we can do nothing. I confess that apart from your work and grace in my life and in our hearts, your law, your commandments would just simply provide more condemnation for us. You failed to keep your law. We have failed to live as you have called us. Like our great-grandparents, we have chosen, we have moved away from enjoying your goodness. We've looked and followed other things that seem good, they seem desirable, We, we take them, we eat them. And in our own guilt and shame, we, we hide from you. Yet in your mercy and grace, Father, you've, you came in the garden to Adam and Eve and you continually invite us as you come to us to call us into relationship, to call us out of darkness into the light. Or as we were enemies, as we were sinning against you, You showed your love for us by sending your son to die in our place. Help us not to treat this lightly. Help us to be gripped by this reality. Only your spirit can do this. We need your help. We want to love you and love others as you have called us. Thank you for sending your spirit because of the work of Jesus to cause us to have a heart that actually wants to follow you. You're given new hearts. We can actually obey you and please you. Thank you. Help us as we go about our weeks, as we start a new week, to be concerned with the welfare of those around us, to be concerned with the way in which we treat others, that it would be marked by the same kind of grace, same kind of gentleness, that David displayed to his son Absalom, that ultimately, Father, you have displayed to us. May we be known by our gentleness. Thank you for the work that you are doing in our church to encourage each other in this way. Lord, I see your hand at work in our church that we are growing in grace. We are growing in gentleness. And it's a beautiful thing to see people feel safe and heard, and loved. People feel safe enough to share how they're really doing. Not what they think other people want to hear, not what they think they should say, but really how they're doing. Opening up about their hurts, about their grief, about their sins. Thank you for your hand that is at work in this. We don't do this left to ourselves. And I pray that you would continue to help us to be a, a community that seeks to help in the healing of others as we seek to be your hands and feet, instruments of your grace. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.